We thank you for a new day. God, um, every day is a gift. Every breath is a gift. You're the author of life. And I know I take it for granted often. And uh, I just want to pause to, in this moment, just to, to nod and say thank you, God, that you've given us life today and the opportunity to meet as your people. Would you, Holy Spirit, uh, just work in this room now. Make yourself known in real ways to the people here watching online. And we ask, God, that you would do things in our hearts and minds that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to continue the series that we're going to end up being in for a lot of the summer, the book of Nehemiah. And if you were here last week or you tuned in last week, Tom shared with us that as the building project has uh, started and is being worked on, the, the people are coming again, up against a lot of opposition. And we learn so much in how Nehemiah responds as a leader in the face of opposition and how the people follow Nehemiah and how they respond to opposition uh, in the midst of this project. Because anything you're going to do uh, usually, you know, the things that, that, are, that are big in our lives, the things that really uh, change our lives, the, the, the projects that we invest in, you inevitably are going to come up against hurdles, opposition, at some point. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're told, like, don't be surprised when the work of the kingdom is met with opposition from the enemy. I mean, expect it. Expect the enemy to, to double his efforts, to try to, to, stumble, uh, to stumble you uh, in the midst of, of your uh, obedience, and be mindful that there's going to be opposition. And so how are you going to respond to opposition? So that the project keeps going, so that the kingdom of God keeps growing. So there's a lot to learn here. And if you missed last week's message, I'd encourage you to listen to Tom's message uh, online. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm the type of person that I just, I don't like to be unprepared. I don't like it, uh, especially when it comes to my, my job. And I don't, you know, one of the things that can happen in my job is you're a pastor and you like get called on to do certain things because like you're the pastor I don't like the last-minute stuff that much, okay? I like, to, I like to prepare. You know, if I get asked to share in a meeting, like, I want to know before the meeting so I can think about it. I can, you know, get some notes and be prepared going into that thing. But often it's just like, hey, do this right now. I don't like that. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but any of you not like being unprepared? I mean, maybe you're having people over for dinner and you look in, the fridge, an hour before people are coming, there's nothing there. Which, by the way, that isn't going to happen for those of you coming to my house tonight for dinner, for the newcomer's dinner. Or I'm, a cl I'm like a classic, I wait till the last minute to pack. I hate packing for trips. I wait till the last minute. I wait till, as, as, I don't know why, I just don't like it. But then I'm, I'm hustling. My wife and I were on a trip just a couple weeks ago, and literally, as, as the person pulls up to pick us up, I'm jamming stuff in the backpack. My wife is mowing the lawn. <laughs> That's how behind, you know, like, 
I don't like that feeling of being unprepared, and particularly when it comes to my, my job. But there's a buddy of mine just had, it's like my horror story as a pastor. He's a pastor, and uh, he did a wedding. I think it was his first wedding that he was doing. And weddings are awesome, but completely terrifying at the same time. Because they're awesome because everybody's happy most of the time. And it's a joyous, celebratory moment. But what's terrifying about it is it's for some, particularly the brides, this is the day they've been waiting for their entire lives. Do not mess this up. <laughs> Which is actually my motto as a pastor. Like, my motto as a pastor performing weddings is don't be memorable. Okay, <laughs> I don't want to do anything like where, you know, a joke bombs or I, I just forget something or I, like, I, I, I go, like, Mary, do you take, and her name is like Kim. You know, like, you get the name thing mixed up. I don't want people to walk out and be like, well, he really blew it. I also don't want people to go like, wow, like, forget about the bride and the groom. That pastor was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather that. But, like, I don't want to be the most memorable thing at, at a wedding. That's kind of my goal when I'm performing weddings. So, anyways, my buddy, Pastor, he's doing, I think it was his, his first wedding. And I see him afterwards, not after the wedding, but later that week. I was like, how did it go? And he goes, it was bad. I go, oh, no. You were memorable, weren't you? I go, what happened? He goes, I forgot the vows. And I go, what happened? Somewhere between the hotel and me standing on stage with the couple, the vows, like my notes, the vows, gone. And I go, that is, that is my nightmare. Because one of the things you're always doing, like public speaking, preaching, is you're looking at your notes, and, and like I don't know how it works in your brain, but like I'm talking, but I'm also like looking at what I need to get to. So at some point, I would have realized if I forgot my, my thing, I'm like, hey, like, you know, here, we're welcome to this wedding. We're glad you're here. And then I'm kind of looking. And I go, where are the vows? So I'm freaking out. Like I have like, I have, like time between now until the vows. Where, what am I going to do? Didn't have the vows. So it just so happens that his dad is a pastor and his dad's at the wedding. So when he gets to the vows, he goes, dad, do you want to come up and lead the couple through the vows? Excuse me? <laughs> Let me just tell Brody, Brian, if I'm at a wedding that you're performing and you forget the vows and I'm there and you go, Aaron, will you lead me through the vows? I'm sitting back and going, no way. I am going to watch you sink. I ain't getting on that boat with you. The dad gets up and rocks vows off the top of his head. I don't know if anyone knew. I go, that's risky. But the du this dude was, you know, forgot the vows, unprepared. This bro over here who gets up and rocks the vows off the top of his head, prepared, ready to go. But that is nightmare sort of scenario for me. Because I can botch a sermon and I go home, my wife's like, that was awful. And I go, yeah, it kind of was. But I, I go, next week, 
I'm going to hit a home run. I'm going to redeem myself. You bomb a wedding? Unless they're renewing their vows like a few years later, there's no fixing of that. Worst case scenario. But preparation is key in execution. And the people are executing a huge project in the rebuilding of this wall. And the thing that amazes me is the preparation you see in Nehemiah as the leader and the people. They're prepared. They're prepared for the opposition. They're prepared for what might happen. And in their, in, and, and in their preparations, they know that they're going to complete this project regardless of what happens. Let me, uh, I want to read for you again Nehemiah 4. Starting in verse 1, it says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? He's just in, he's in pure slander, like ridiculing mode. Like sarcastically going, are they going to build it in a day? You know, you know people when they do that. For whatever, you know, whatever reason, he's against it. And what we see is the opposition is willing to do just about anything to destroy the efforts of the people. They're willing to play dirty. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. Like, look at that thing. It's weak. It's just insult after insult after insult. Hear us. Now, this is the people speaking. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. I love that. They worked with all of their heart. All the people. You know, they built this wall in 52 days. It's an incredible feat. But it's an example of what God can do in and through us in short periods of time when we're obedient and we're willing to do things with all of our hearts. Do not underestimate a big God who can do big things in a group of people who are willing to work with all of their hearts for him. Verse 7, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So it starts with insults, the opposition. But it doesn't work. And so uh, as the wall is being built, the opposition sees the success. They go, all right, we have to step up the game. 
and they start to, to plan basically physical violence against the people. Now, one of the things that you don't get in, in reading this until you under, uh, until you sort of dig is like, this is, like, this is, this is legit opposition. We just sort of hurry through a bunch of names, but when you, when you break down the names here and the groups of people, what you see is that opposition to the people and the wall and the building of the wall is literally coming from all sides. There is, they, have, they have absolutely no safety behind them, in front of them, to either side. There is people and people groups pressing in from all sides. Sanballat, that name, that kind of weird name, he represents the Sumerians from the north. Uh, in verse 7, it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Arabs were the people groups from the south. And then it says the Ammonites. Tobiah was an Ammonite, and he's kind of this leader of the Ammonites. The Ammonites were a people group from the east. And then finally in verse 7, it says the people of Ashdod, which are the Ashdodites. They were, they were people from the west. So you had Sumerians in the north, Arabs in the south, you had the, the Ammonites to the east and the Ashdodites to the, to the west. They're literally being encircled. There's literally no way out for the people. And we read in verses 4 and 5 this, this lament, which the Hebrew word for um, here, when, it, when this prayer, hear us, O God, for we are despised, it's a lament. We are in trouble. We're in big trouble. And I don't know if this was worth it. There's this, this lament buried within this text. It's like, I don't know if I should have said yes to this. You know, one thing that's interesting, and we know this from, from verse uh, chapter rather three, is that varying people groups from around villages of Jerusalem came from their villages to join in the work of the rebuilding of the wall. And the, the, the Sumerians, uh, they would go into the villages and they would start to stir up conflict. They'd, they, would, they would make up things. They would lie. They would gossip. They would slander. All to try to stir up the, the, the village. So they would go to the Sumerians and they would stir it up. They'd go to the Ammonites and they would stir up uh, things, the Ashdodites, and they would stir up things to the Arab uh, villages. They would stir up, they would stir up, uh, the Arabs would stir up things in the, in the local villages. And so you had all these, these probably men who had left their villages, gone into Jerusalem, they're working on the walls, and it is inevitable, almost certain, that you would have had family members, friends, acquaintances coming in from these villages, not only to just see the wall, like see what's happening, but They've been stirred up by the different people groups. And so it's likely that they came in and they went up to their, their brother or their father or their friend and they said, get out of here now. <coughs> come home, please, come home. This is not worth it. Sumerians are going to attack. The Ammonites are going to attack. I mean, 
this is not worth it to lose your life for this? And so Nehemiah, he's got all this opposition, and in the midst of all this opposition and all these threats, and, and, and really on the verge of, of war, the biggest challenge probably at this point is desertion. The people are going to run away, flee. That's instinctive to how we've been created. What fear, you know, the fight or flight mechanism that we've been created with. There's, there's a part of us that in the midst of fear, we go into survival mode and we, we, you know, we do what we have to do to survive. And so Nehemiah finds himself in a situation where literally this, this project is on the verge of complete collapse. Not going to finish it. It's not going to happen. There's a good chance that, that desertion, that we see people uh, just go back home and say, this just isn't worth it. I'm too afraid. So Nehemiah, in his leadership, he's got to do something. And what he's able to do uh, is simultaneously encourage the people so that they, they keep going. They don't give up. They don't desert, while also impressing the enemy that they're not to be messed with. That they're not just going to fall over and give up. And so we read as we go on into uh, chapter 4 that Nehemiah, he starts to station people in and around the workers. He arms these people. And he positions them strategically around the, the building of the, the wall to, to offer protection from like impending, you know, violence. But what's, what's really interesting, and you don't get this in the English text, is we read this and, um, well, let me read for you in verse 13. And I don't have it up on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen to me. Um, in verse 12, it goes, the Jews who lived uh, around us go, wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. Like, we're in trouble. Therefore, Nehemiah, he goes, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So we just read that. We're like, okay, he's putting, he's strategically positioning people. But what's amazing about what he, uh, what he, he actually does, and we don't get the, the fullness in the English text, is he doesn't just say to this person, you go there, and to that person, you go uh, there. Rather, he gathered all of the people. He brought everybody in. And in full battle order, in the order of the conscript army, which you go, what is that? It is a really fancy, fancy term for a draft. You know, like a, a military draft? He basically brings everybody in. And in, in, in very pragmatic terms, he, uh, he brings the people in and he addresses them in a way that would have been reminiscent of preparing a people for a holy war. 
This would have been something that the people are familiar with. We're not familiar with it. Very few, if any of us, have been in that moment before, you know, war. Before you're about to storm the beach or go into the jungle. I mean, I, some of you veterans maybe have had that experience. Most of us have not. But this was like common for the, I mean, the Jewish people have constantly had opposition against them. They've constantly had to, to fight. And so these moments where right before war are key. I mean, you've seen the movie Braveheart, right? Remember that movie where, where William Wallace like is leading these sort of ragtag group of people against like the, 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 the military strength of, of the King of England? Or was it Scotland? One of them. Or both of them. I don't remember. But, uh, and, and there's a scene where, where they want to leave. They're, they see the army. And the army's dressed from head to toe in military garb. They have far more people, far more weapons. And these like pagan farmers, sort of right group of people, see this and go, I don't want anything to do this. And they start to desert. And, the, and one of the guys is like, to William Wallace, you got to do something. And there's a scene where he's, you know, riding his horse and he's calling the men back and he's saying, you can't leave. And what does he do? He gives that famous speech. You know, they can take your lives, but they'll never take your freedom. And he's able to bring the, bring the men back to fight. And this is like, he copied, if that happened, he copied it from Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah did it before William Wallace. He brings all the people back in a strategic, real way. And, he, and he, he, he gives this sort of like renowned uh, speech in verse 14, which again, I don't have it up here, but he says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, see that? Everybody. He brought in everybody. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome and fight for your families. Your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. He's saying, remember the promise of God. He promised our ancestors long ago that we would have this land. That this would be our promised land. And even in the midst of our exile, he promised us that he would bring us back. Remember that promise. So regardless of what you see and the enemies that are surrounding us, God is bigger. His promises are stronger. Do not give up. And then he goes, fight for your families. Fight for your land. This was a call that like, the people would have been familiar with just based on their history. They'd been offered, they'd been given this, this land. And they've had to fight for it. But God has even entered the fight. They have stories of God entering the fight because his promises, they will not be broken. And so Nehemiah, by bringing all the people in and by giving this, this renowned speech of remember God, he's awesome. Remember what he has promised us. Like step out in faith and courage and fight for these promises. The morale of the people goes up. But he strategically did this in front of the enemies to see, hey, we're not going to give up. He did it in a way 
that the rest, that the opposition saw what Nehemiah and the people were doing, what they were willing to do, that they would not give up. So listen to verse 16 and 18. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builder wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. When I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. So the more you're spread out, the more vulnerable you are to attack. He says, we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, and God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. It, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, the people go from this lament to like possibly leaving, quitting, desertion to I'm going to fight. And, and Nehemiah in his leadership, in his wisdom, he was prepared. I just do not think that Nehemiah was like, what? There's going to be opposition? Like, I don't think he was surprised by opposition. And I don't think he was surprised that, like, when people started to grumble and complain. I don't think he was like, what? You guys are afraid? Why would you be afraid? He doesn't do any of that. He's prepared. There's no doubt in my mind that Nehemiah knew. In his time with God, in his preparation... That like, there was going to be opposition. That this was going to be hard. That there was going to be moments where the people wanted to give up. And I don't think he just is responding on a whim. I think he was ready when the opposition came. I think he was ready when the people began to, to be afraid. When they began to grumble and complain. I think he was as prepared as he could be. And he executed his plan based on his, his preparation. And the people respond in like courageous ways. I mean, I, I just, I'm amazed at, at the fact that you have people like working with one hand and with the other hand they're holding a sword. Like, That's commitment. That's courage. That is a willingness to make this happen. And I just, I just wonder, like, what is God preparing in your life and my life? Am I prepared? I, I think we get sideswiped way too much in life. I, I, look, there's going to be things that happen in your life that you don't have any control. You didn't plan for it to happen. You never imagined this was going to be part of your story in life. There's a lot you can't prepare for. 
but you can be prepared as a follower of Jesus of how you're going to respond to that opposition. Things are going to happen. Unfortunate heartbreaks are going to play out throughout our lives. You know, uncertain seasons of life and scary moments in life are inevitable. And while you can't prepare because you don't know what may or may not happen to you in your life, you can prepare to how you're going to respond to the difficulties, the trials, and the opposition in your life. How do you think Nehemiah prepared himself for this? The thing I see in Nehemiah is a man of wisdom. How he responds, it's almost never like out of, out of like emotion, like just it's, 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 we don't see like him responding out of selfish ambition or sin or just like on his own. He almost always responds in prayer. See, the greatest preparation I think Nehemiah has, is doing throughout all of this, is he has a dynamic, spiritual life with God. He demonstrates a relationship with God, one in which he has two-way communication, one in which he invests his time with God, one where he brings God into it. Every time there's problems, he prays, God, Here's what's going on. We need you. Fulfill this promise. Like, the man is prepared because his heart is open to God. And he's actively pursuing a dynamic, real relationship with God. And the second thing is he has good people around him to support him. to be there in the midst of these challenges and opposition. So I would, I'd leave you with this. What, if God has his hands on your life, and you, you're, you take your hands off and you go, God, I, I actually want you to work in my life. I actually want you to do things in my life. And I actually want, I'm willing to like, step out in faith and let you write the story and I will obediently be a part of that story. That's what Nehemiah has done in his life. He's doing hard things that God's calling him to do with a lot of risk and yet you never see him sort of question, waver, or even begin to, to walk away. He's that committed. I'm going. And I'll tell you what, if you are willing to say that to God, he's going to take you places. He's going to do things in your life and through your life. The problem is so, so many of us, we don't, our hands are all over our lives. All over, in complete control, pulling all the levers. And I just say, okay, God can't prepare a, a life to do 
the work and write the story that God wants to write if, like, he doesn't have his hands in the soil of your heart and your mind? You know, every year my wife, not every year, but she's, for the last number of years, has been doing a garden. You know what the first thing she does? If she wants to see plants grow in her garden by, you know, throughout the summer, by the end of the summer, she doesn't just throw seeds down on top of the, the crusty sort of winter uh, soil, frozen soil. You know, the first thing you do is you get down dirty and you start to break up the soil. You start to prepare the soil so that you can put seed in the soil so that it can be watered and so that something can grow. And I, the question I, I would ask myself and I would ask you is like, does God really have his hands on the soil of my life? Do I let him break up the ground in my life? So that seeds, spiritual seeds, of, of, can be uh, planted so that good things can grow. See, a lot of people aren't prepared for stuff because they just, they're, they're not open to, they're not even open to God doing things in their life. Or God really having control. God, God can't pre prepare you He's not going to force it on you unless you're willing to take your hands off and let God put his hands on your life. And Nehemiah is an example of somebody who's willing to let God get his hands in the soil of his life and work. And what we see is, is when God is allowed to work in our lives, we're, we're able to respond to circumstances different. We're able to respond to adverse, uh, adverse things differently. We're, we're, we're able to respond to opposition different. Yeah, we get sideswiped. Things happen in our life, but we know that God's, we're not alone in it. That, that actually in my, in my time with God, my, my prayer life, my, my time in his word, like, I am ready to fight whatever battle is in front of me. I don't want to be in the battle. I don't want this battle, God, but I'm not going to flee. I'm not going to give up. I will fight. I will keep going. And extraordinary things can happen in our world. Extraordinary things can happen in our lives. Extraordinary things can happen through your life. When you let God get into the soil and prepare the ground and plant things that grow, that, that, that matter forever. Are you willing to let God prepare you to work in and through you, to keep going when it's hard? To not give up. Ser spiritual seeds of life and righteousness will grow in faithfulness. A garden doesn't grow overnight. It takes time. But in time, 
faithfulness in picking the weeds and watering. Things grow. And the faithfulness that, that Nehemiah has demonstrated in his life, dealing with sin, picking weeds out of his life when he needed to, watering, watering, just being saturated by the presence of God, that wall was going to continue to grow. Nothing was going to get in the way of God completing what God had started. And if your life is open to be, and, and, and God is preparing something, whatever he starts, it will finish. It will be done. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you are good. I pray, God, that uh, we would just be a people that are equipped, prepared to live out the calling you have for us as a church, to live out the calling you have for us as families, to live out the calling you have for us, individuals, followers of you, Jesus. So I pray, God, that you'd get your hands into the, the, the soil of this church. Continue to, to just break up the things that need to be broken. Continue to plant spiritual seeds, God, in our lives and through our, in our church that grow, that produce things that last. And pull the weeds, God, in our lives. Pull the weeds in this church. The things, the sin that, that we all have, show us so that we do not become entangled. We're never going to be able to be prepared for everything that happens, God. But you, we, God, you can prepare us in how we respond to the conflicts of life. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be prepared. And that we'd always respond in wisdom the way that we see Nehemiah responding. The right way, the best way, the godly way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.